Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do this evening, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 as we continue in our study through the acts of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the work of the Spirit of God in the lives of the apostles. But they just call it Acts because that's shorter. Is it possible for us to have revival? Is it possible for us to have revival? And when I talk about revival, I mean a a great outworking of the Spirit of God, a great change in direction in a person's life, perhaps in a family, or a church, or even a nation. It, It seems at times when I read about the Great Awakenings, when I read about the Welsh Revival, when I read about how God took a country on the verge of chaos, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but... There was a great moving of God among the the people in uh, the UK that kept them from becoming just like France did, where its citizens rose up and and killed all of its leaders. And if it hadn't been for such an outpouring of the Spirit of God and faithful men to preach the Word of God and faithful men and women to carry out the work, it would have turned into chaos. It would have turned into chaos. And so when I read about that, it seems like, well, it's right there. God could do it at any minute. And then I turn on the news, and then I scroll through social media, and then I turn on the talking heads, whether on radio or podcast or other, and it seems like wickedness and confusion just abound more each day. And I want to believe that there can be a turning of the tide. God is not weakened. The gospel has not lost its power. And so what what is the problem? Something is, is missing. Something is missing. I think it's missing from our lives personally. I think it's something that can be put into our lives, that God can restore. What are the essential ingredients for revival? Uh, I hope you desire to see a great moving of God. I hope that you don't have the idea that we're just going to hold the fort till Jesus comes, that nothing great can be done for God anymore. And even perhaps if a country can't be turned back from the brink, most certainly individuals can. Without a doubt, families can. Without a doubt, churches can. Communities can. I just heard of someone today who was greatly grieved because their church just decided to close until spring. The church where they they were going, and and, and I'm not entirely sure why, but I know that it was greatly disheartening to somebody um, that is is loosely connected to our ministry here, and I, I grieve for that situation. What is it that keeps revival tarrying? Perhaps it's many things, but I know that there's one thing in particular, and I think that we have to remember how all of these revivals started. I know we want to imagine that just one day we're going to show up to church and there's going to be about 750 people that we don't know that just randomly decided to show up here one day and all try and pack into this room and pack into all the classrooms and pack into the, the fellowship hall. And we think that that's how it's, it's going to happen, that that's revival. But historically speaking, it began with one person. The Welsh revival, surrounded by one young lady in her teens that got up at a testimony meeting and said that she loved the Lord Jesus Christ with her whole heart. And I don't know why that was the beginning of it, but historically speaking, if you look back, To that, people will trace it back to that meeting and that moment when that young lady got up and started something. It will begin with a person that then influences their family and friends, that perhaps then influences a church, that influences other churches and a region and a state and perhaps even a country. 
And so is there any clue in the Bible, any great moving of God in the Bible that we can look at and say, what were the conditions for that to happen? What were the conditions for that to happen? Uh, I, I am not particularly good when it comes to growing things. But there is one thing that I know. There are certain places in my yard where when I plant things there, they don't grow well. Why? The soil's not the right condition for it. Things need to be added. Things need to be removed. There needs to be something done to that area, whether it's the aspect of the sun, whether it's too low and there's water sitting. There's all sorts of things that it could be. So the question here is, what needs to be in place for there to be revival? What needs to be in place for the gospel to go forward in a great way? Well, the triumph of the gospel at Pentecost is perhaps one of the greatest movings of God that we read about in Scripture. And how at a time when it should have been the story that Jesus was defeated and his, his disciples had run for the hills and that he was gone and we, they stamped him out, that instead the gospel was preached at this great meeting when, when thousands, tens of thousands of pilgrims were in the city for a special feast day. What happened before it, though? What happened before it? What soil was there and can we have it too? Well, in the book of Acts, we, we see some of these things, beginning in verse 12 of Acts chapter 1, in verse number 12, then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Let's pray together. Father, as we go to your word tonight, I pray that something lasting would be done, even if it's in just the heart of one person, even if it's just in my heart. But what a great gift it would be if all of us were moved by your spirit to be changed tonight. We pray for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, during his earthly life and ministry, when he was on this earth, bodily walking, preaching, teaching, performing miracles, revealing who God the Father was to us, called certain people to follow him. He asked them to, to be his followers, and, and not just for a day, and not just for a week, and not just for a month, but he asked them to leave what they were doing with their lives and commit themselves to not just following where he went, but to follow in his footsteps, to do what he did, to say what he said, to, effort, to put effort towards the things that he put effort for. And these disciples have now changed to become what we would think of as apostles. Once they were followers, now they have been sent with the message of God. And Jesus Christ charged them that they needed to go into all the earth and preach the gospel to every creature that all power was given unto the Lord Jesus, and by that authority, he gave it to them that they might teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever he commanded. He gave them this mission that they were supposed to go on, and then he ascended back up into heaven. We talked about that last time. He was literally caught up into the clouds and gone. And two angels appeared after he was caught up, and they promised not only did he go away in like manner, but he's going to return someday. But until he returns, there's something for you to do. And that is the background at which we, we see these verses happen. 
In verse number 12, it says, Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. It was on the Mount of Olives that the Lord Jesus gathered, gave them that last part of the Great Commission, and then was caught up into the heavens. And as he was caught up into the heavens, they then had to leave. <laughs> they had to leave and go back. They had to return. But they didn't return how they came. They were, if, if the resurrection of Jesus didn't do it before, now they were fully convinced by seeing him received up into heaven and angels appearing that the Lord Jesus Christ was not just any man, he was truly God. And that truth in their heart is the only thing that can explain what is going to happen in the book of Acts. It's said beautifully in Colossians 2. Would you turn there with me? Colossians 2. How much of Jesus was truly divine? It says in Colossians chapter 2, in verses number 9 and 10, it reads, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Here, what they're claiming about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is not just any man, he is the God-man, and everything about God that makes him God, Jesus had that. In fullness. It wasn't in some abstract way, but in Jesus bodily, just as much as God the Father was God the Father, and God the Son was God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit was God the Holy Spirit, just as much as they are who they are, Jesus was that when he was with them, and he says you're complete in him. You don't need anything else. You're not lacking anything because of the Lord Jesus. And he is the head of all powers, spiritual or otherwise, all authority he's over. And they had this so fixed in their hearts that that is what explains why they were about to do what they were about to do. Imagine for a second the idea of what the enemies of Jesus said. Imagine if that was true. The enemies of Jesus said that the soldiers outside the tomb where Jesus was buried, those soldiers actually fell asleep on the job. This is what Jesus' enemies claim, that they fell asleep on the job, and when they had fallen asleep on the job, this whole, whole group of Roman soldiers fell asleep. Jesus' disciples came and snuck in and grabbed the body of Jesus away and then started putting out lies that Jesus had risen from the grave. And then not only had they done that, but from there, then they started to do all that we read about in the book of Acts. All of the preaching all of the persecution that they suffered, all of the churches that were started, all of these things were predicated upon a lie. And they just didn't want to give it up. No, we can see what the apostles were like when they thought Jesus had died and wasn't going to rise. We can tell by those disciples that were discouraged on the road to Emmaus when they were so brokenhearted. And when Jesus appeared to them in disguise, they started to, to share about how discouraged they were. And don't you know? And don't you know what happened? And Jesus had to correct them. Perhaps you remember that from our study in the Gospel of Luke. We know what they were like. They were beaten and downcast. They were discouraged. And so the idea that they could go in that state without truly having seen a risen Christ, without truly having watched his ascension, is ridiculous to think that they would do that. They were real men. We read about here the women that supported Jesus. They were real women, and they had real feelings. But something happened that made them, without a doubt, have in their hearts the conviction that Jesus Christ was truly the Son of God. 
And so no matter who was about to stand in their way and no matter what problems there were, they were going to stand for Jesus. And now they come from this spiritual high moment on the Mount of Olives when Jesus was taken up into the, the clouds. And now they come back down from the Mount. You know what this reminds me of? Youth camp. Youth camp. I don't know if you've ever been to summer camp uh, in, a, in a church, but youth camp is usually one of these times when you get away from all the distractions, you get away from all of the bad influences, mostly, unless they come with the youth group, right? That's debatable on who you would identify as that. And then you get away from the technology. There's all sorts of rules about we're spending time in devotions, we're spending time with the preaching and teaching, we're spending all of this time. And young people that go off to camp like this, that are perhaps only mildly interested in God, come back having had a real encounter with God, perhaps hearing from him for the first time or settling their salvation or being called into ministry or called back into faithfulness. And they have to come down off the mount and they have to come back home to their parents to their friends, to their siblings. They have to try and find a way to live that higher life that they found when they were called up onto that mount, as it were, onto that spiritual high place with all of that teaching, with all of that preaching, with all the things removed that distract them. And they have to find some way to live it. And they did. They kept going. Back in our passage, it was a short distance Then return they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. You say, how long is a Sabbath day's journey? Just a little bit over half a mile. Not very long. You weren't really supposed to travel that far on the Sabbath. There were rules about all of that stuff. You had to stay local. It was a day for worship. It was a day for rest. And so the distance between the mountain and the house where they were staying was not physically that far away, but the difference that it made in the lives of the disciples were significant. It was significant. Remember, you had Peter, who was the unofficial spokesperson for the apostles. What what did he do not too far ago in Scripture? He denied the Lord Jesus three times when he was called out as to whether or not he was truly a follower of Jesus. When Jesus was taken from the garden, when he was being uh, tried falsely, when he was being mocked, Peter was hiding, pretending he didn't know him. And now we're going to see a very different Peter in Acts chapter 2. Something has changed this man. Something different has happened. And he has this rock-solid conviction now. And now, even though it was a small distance that they traveled back, it was a large distance in their own growth. In Acts chapter 1, in verse number 13, And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. Here we have all of these disciples that are now going to become apostles. They were just followers. Now they are going to be the ones that help other people to become followers of the Lord Jesus. And they're all gathered together in an upper room. Usually in somebody's house, if it was of decent size, the upper room is going to be on the second floor, the largest in the house, because they need all the walls and the little rooms in the bottom of the house to keep the things supported. That's how they built their houses. And so oftentimes it was a cleaner room. There was some place in the city, in Jerusalem, where they had gathered together, and this was the headquarters of where they were. And notice all the different personalities that were there. Notice all the different people that were there. It says that you've got, well, Peter and James and John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew. 
You have James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon Zelotes. Not all of these people always got along with one another. If you can remember back to the, the time and when we studied the Gospel of Luke, these men would fight over who would be the greatest. James and John, their mother came and said, hey, can they, can they sit in your right and left hand? Can they be your, your, your guys? And they even up to the point where it was the night before Jesus was crucified, they were arguing about who would be the greatest among them. And now they're all together. And how are they together? This is important. Don't miss this. Verse 14. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. This is a very different group than what we saw before the resurrection. This is a very different group even than what we were reading about between the resurrection and the ascension. Now they're all together in one place, not just by accident. Jesus isn't there anymore, by the way. Jesus isn't there to make them behave. He's not there to make them get along with one another. He's not there to make sure that they have to keep going because he's the boss and they said they'd follow him and so they got to put up with the other ones. No, they gathered together even though Jesus was not there bodily. And it says that they all continued with one accord. That word continued doesn't just mean that they kept on going. No, there's a whole lot more to it. Have you ever wanted to quit when you were on a jog? I quit jogging before I even start. But there have been a few times when my common sense left me and I thought, I should go for a run. And when you go and you start running and you get tired and your feet hurt and your shoes are old or maybe they're brand new and you haven't broken them in more and the sun comes out just wrong and you, you suddenly have to use the bathroom and there's all of these things that happen that want to keep you from moving forward and yet instead of quitting instead of stopping you push forward anyway you go with endurance against all the things that are trying to stop you all of the things that are pushing back against you you refuse to be interrupted you refuse to stop that's the kind of continuing that we're talking about here that even though there were many reasons that people could come up with as to why they should scatter and why they shouldn't be there anymore and why they, they should be fearful like they were just a few little verses ago before the Lord Jesus came and said, fear not, and appeared in front of them, they decided to continue going and they would not. They were obstinately together. That's what they were. They were obstinately together. You know somebody that's obstinate. They're stubborn. They just won't give up. You ever had a child or a grandchild refuse to give up and they just keep asking? They keep whittling away at you? That's how I finally got a dog in seventh grade. I wore him down. I wore my dad down. He didn't want one, but we got one. Why? Because I was stubborn and obstinate. And that's what they were saying. Despite all of the things that would pull them apart, they refused to do that. They refused to be interrupted, even though you had people like Simon the Zealot and Matthew. Not, not necessarily going to get along that well. James and John and the other ones. Peter, who oftentimes stuck his foot in his mouth and said things prematurely. All of these people are now together. And do you know who they're with? The women. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Jesus' brothers. And they're all in a big room. And they're all together. Do you know how you can do that? You have to refuse to leave. <laughs> you 
Even though you have a reason to in your own mind, you have to refuse to leave a gathering like that if you're going to stay. Because if you wanted to find fault with somebody in this room, you could have found fault with somebody. I want you to remember who it was that stood by Jesus when he was on the cross. Anybody remember who it was that stood by Jesus when he was on the cross? John and Mary and the women. Do you know who wasn't there? All of the guys that were up there in that room. The women stayed, but they didn't. Can you imagine Mary sitting there looking at Peter? Where were you? Where were you when my son was up there? Hey, James, where were you? And other James, and other James, where were all you guys? Anybody that said James, where were you? Right? She could have, but no, she was up there. Jesus' brother, they didn't even believe in him. They didn't even believe. Look, look at these faithful women in Matthew 27, would you? In Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, verses 51. Here we have the events that are happening right at the end of the crucifixion. In Matthew 27, and verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. And came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. And it goes on to talk about which women were there. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's children. And so it talks about these faithful women. In fact, do you know that that was one of Jesus's biggest supporters financially were some of these women? Would you look with me in Luke 8? There's some very ignorant people out there who don't know what the Bible or what history says, but I want you to know that Christianity did not put women into bondage. If anything, it was one of the chief factors throughout history that lifted women up to the place where God wanted them to be, to be valued. In Luke chapter 8, in verse number 3, it says, And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him of their substance. This is a group of certain women. They were there, and the things that they had, they cared for Jesus and his disciples out of their substance. There is this idea that Western society, built upon the principles of the Bible, has done terrible things to hold back women and were some sort of tyrannical patriarchy. I want you to know that if that is true to any extent, it is not because the Bible in any way makes women out to be any less. People simply don't understand what Scripture says. Here, they were elevated up to be in the same place with Jesus' followers and disciples, when oftentimes the women and the men would be separated, where women were viewed as possessions, where they could be tossed aside without any protection societally in case a man wanted to change in his wife for a younger one. He could do whatever he wanted, but Jesus put protections in so that they weren't cast aside. Jesus was very clear to say that that ought never happen and how they ought to be treated. 
That's a different sermon for a different time. But they were all together. And notice that Mary and this group of, of people that's there, did you notice that she was not listed first? She was not listed first. That's not to make any less of her. She was a blessed woman, without a doubt. She was a godly woman. But we also know that, that she was not divine like Jesus was divine. She is not God. Jesus was God in the flesh. She was not in any way a part of salvation or is currently in any way part of salvation. She is listed among those that are there, but there's a lot of confusion that happened throughout history when people decided to add things into Scripture that were popular at the time. They decided to add some things in there, and that's where you get the worship and the following of Mary or the Blessed Virgin. It is more whenever they ran into a culture that had some sort of, the, the Catholic Church, when they ran into a culture that had some sort of female goddess or deity, they're like, oh yeah, we've got that too, that's Mary. Come on over, right? You ever wondered why a lot of the Christian worship, especially Catholicism in Central America and South America, are so different than what we see up here? It's because there was a policy that when the, the, the Catholic missionaries would go and would try and get the people to join them, they would allow them to bring their pagan practices in with them right. instead of asking them to separate. That's why you see so much of this weird stuff that happens throughout time. And so though she was a blessed lady and she was here and she was among the disciples, it's not like Mary was there and then everybody else happened to be there with them. Remember, Jesus' brothers, they, they did not believe on him at first. In John chapter 7, in verse number 5, they actually mocked Jesus. And they urged him, if you think you're really somebody, why don't you go and show yourself openly and take over this place? Why don't you go and let everybody know you're the Messiah? Because they didn't really believe it. In verse number five, it said, for neither did his brethren believe in him. What a hurtful thing that must have been to the Lord Jesus. That those he lived with for the longer part of his life uh, think about it, him being the older, and they all got to see him grow up. They got to see his sinlessness. Jesus didn't just become sinless when he started his ministry. He always was, which means he never sinned as a child. He never sinned as a teenager. He never sinned as a young adult. He was sinless. And they saw that, and they still didn't believe. They still didn't believe. People can be looking right at the truth and not see it. Sometimes people are so familiar with the truth, they become overly familiar. You know what one of the, the great dangers in ministry is? Becoming overly familiar with the holy. Things that are holy, things that are separated, things that are special, people in ministry or that are commonly around the things of the Bible, are at church all the time, are reading their Bible, they become overly familiar, and they're like, oh yeah, that. Oh yeah, church. Oh yeah, I, I get that. You can see it happen in the Old Testament with Eli and his sons. They, they stopped to care about the holy things. Why? Because it was, eh, it's just another thing that they did. And so it wasn't a big deal to them to be as wicked as they were and to treat the things of God with such contempt. Perhaps that's what it was with his brothers. We're not told all of the reasons why they didn't believe, but we know that they didn't. You know, they, they refused, even with all of these personalities, they refused to leave. They refused to leave. Would you look in 1 Peter 4? I feel bad for the people up in the sound booth because I'm jumping around. 1 Peter. Four and verse number eight. How? With so many personalities and so many people in that upper room, with so many strong personalities, 
with so many people that probably have a beef against the others, or it did at least at one point, in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse number 8, what is it that they had? And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. The word charity being used here to point out, we're not just talking about any kind of love, we're talking about the perfect love of God, the perfect sacrificial love of God. It says it covers a multitude of sins. The easiest way for me to say this is for you to think back to that person in middle school or high school that you crushed on hard. You just, you thought that they hung the stars and the moon, they could do nothing wrong. That person you were, you were first infatuated with, and you thought, wow, they look good even when they're dirty and smelly. You know, she always looks good even when she rolls out of bed and there's, there's no make. You know, you think about all of the things that never bothered you and how you were able to overlook all of them. What was that? Well, in some sense, you were able to overlook, you were able to cover a multitude of things because of how you felt about them. You're able to cover a multitude of things because of how you felt about them. Um, uh, ladies, you may not have had this moment because your hearts, if you had children, your hearts were so bound up in that child for all of those months that you carried that child. But dad, granddad, papa, whatever you're called, I mean, what, what, what's the deal? This kid is keeping you up all night and crying and changing diaper after diaper, cleaning out bottle after bottle. Formula costs how much? Another box of diapers? Oh, we can't go out again? We can't do anything again? Oh, okay. What, what is it that lets you overlook this person who has invaded your life and has taken all of your money and your free time and even your sleep from you? What is it that makes you not just get rid of them? Love? <laughs> Ladies, you probably never even pondered that. But us men are shallow creatures. It's love that makes you overlook all of that. That's why you stay. Charity shall cover, this love shall cover a multitude of sins. And the love that they had for one another and the bond that they had inside of Jesus Christ made them stay. Jesus said, this is how you'll know if you're my disciples, whether or not you love one another. I saw a great quote on the internet, the churches that stop loving will eventually die. Churches that stop loving will eventually die. And there's a lot of truth there because that is one of the hallmarks of God's children. It's how the brethren love one another. And here we finally see it displayed. And what are they doing together as they wait for the power on high? Well, back in Acts chapter 1, I want you to look again. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 13. Verse number 14, excuse me. And these all continued with one accord, one mind. They were all in agreement about these things of prayer and supplication. Prayer and supplication. This is what they were doing. They were praying. This is what they were doing. They were praying. What did they do when they were up in the morning? They were praying. What were they doing in the afternoon? They were praying. What were they doing in the evening? They, they were praying. Why? Because they had been given an impossible task that required the power of God. They were told to preach the gospel to every creature. As the Father hath sent me, so send I you, spoke the Lord Jesus to them. And so now they had to go 
and seek and save the lost as Jesus did, but they don't have the power to do it, and they were actually told not to leave until they got that power. Look in Acts chapter 1 back in, oh, let's see here, verse number 4. Acts 1 and verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For truly, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Before the Lord Jesus ascended up into heaven, he spoke these words to them, and he says, you're going to go back to Jerusalem, even though I've told you to go, you need to wait until you have power. What you're facing is too large for you, and you need the power of God to do it. And so what were they praying about? They were praying for that power. The power that he promised in Acts 1 and verse 8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And so they prayed because they couldn't go forward without God's power. They couldn't go forward without God's power. They didn't scheme. They didn't come up with some other way to do it. They didn't start without God's power and think that hard work is going to get it done. They prayed and they waited for God to move, and he most certainly did. So, so what are some takeaways for us this evening? What are some things that we can practically apply? If you're in the habit of taking notes, make sure you jot these things down. First of all, be confident that Jesus is God. Be confident that Jesus is God. They saw Jesus' life. They saw his ministry, his healing, his miracles. They also saw his crucifixion. They saw his death and his resurrection. They saw his ascension. They spoke with him. They watched him ascend into the clouds. They spoke with angels afterwards. These men and women had it firmly fixed in their mind about who Jesus was. And it changed them. I really would have liked to have seen some of those things. I really would have liked to have seen some of those things. Any of you think you might be a bolder witness if Jesus appeared right in front of you in a closed room without using the door and he was just there after you know he was dead and buried for days? Wouldn't that do something for you? You wouldn't so much worry about whether the cashier at Target looked at you weird if you gave her a gospel tract you wouldn't, you wouldn't worry so much about talking with the receptionist in the doctor's office about the Lord or the person who has to be seated next to you, the coworker on the job site, the person in the classroom, that family member. If you saw Jesus fly up into heaven and angels appear afterwards, I, I think we'd be a little bit bolder about who we talk to. I think that when people try and make us be quiet, we, we would not be quiet because we cannot help but speak the things that we have seen and heard, right? They, they threaten, in just a few chapters, they're going to threaten the apostles to not teach and preach in Jesus' name anymore. The government's going to come down hard on them and says, you're not doing this, we're going to beat you, and if you do it again, your lives are forfeit, and they're like, hey, you're gonna, who should we obey, you or God? It's like, how, how can we choose men over God? They were able to stand... Because they were thoroughly confident in who Jesus was. They were thoroughly confident. You and I need to do the same. Nothing would stop them. They returned from that spiritual high, still faithful. And if Jesus is God, and he is, then you and I should also stand just as boldly as they stood. 
Second of all, refuse to be separated from the brethren. Refuse to be separated from the brethren. Different personalities, backgrounds, points of view. But instead of being divided, they were unified. What were they unified about? Jesus. They were unified about Jesus. They all believed the same thing because they all saw him rise from the dead. They saw him ascend up into heaven. They knew the power that he had. They, they know how he changed their life. They know that they did miracles in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were able to get over, well, that person and I don't get along and we have different viewpoints and that person grates on me and man, I can't stand her. I can't stand him. They're just driving me nuts. But you know what? Doesn't matter because of Jesus. We've been called into this great work. And we can't come down from this great work for those lesser things, for the nonsense. And so they were able to overlook the many faults and failings. If you're looking for an excuse to throw someone away, you will find it. If you're looking for a reason to not come to church, to not be in Sunday school, to, to not read your Bible, to not, you, you can find something about me, about your Sunday school teacher, about some other Christian, you can find something about them that falls short of what the Lord Jesus wants them to be. You will always find fault with Christ's followers, but you will never find fault with Jesus Christ. We may fail and fall short, but he never does. He never does. And so what do we do? What do we do here? Well, if we want to have the moving of God, I think that one of the main things that we need to have is unity. I don't think you get it without unity. If they were squabbling and my way, my ideas, I don't think they would have had it. I don't think they would have continued like that, obstinately together with one mind. You see, this is how people with different backgrounds and different ideas, this is how they find unity. How do you find unity? in a group of 200 people. How do you find unity in something like that? Well, you all have to stand in the same place. You all have to agree. What should we agree on? My ideas? Your ideas? No, the Word of God. That is how we find a place of unity. What does God say? You say, you talk about the Word of God like it's all the, the answers to all of our problems if we just read it and obey it. Y yes! Yes, that's what I'm trying to do. Try and do it with me. If you seek after God and you're in his word and you're trying to live out the word of God and the power of God, we're all going to find ourselves on the same page. It's amazing how that happens. I had one of the dumbest things taught to me when I went to seminary and it almost made me uh, quit my, my uh, degree program was I went to a leadership class and it was a bunch of garbage most of the other classes I took there were great, but this class was garbage and I was so excited to study it. It was just a bunch of worldly philosophy. You're like the locomotive. Get everyone to hook their car up to you and drag them in the direction you're going. What? Is the Spirit of God not real? Does God not lead people? Absolutely. If we all seek the face of God, we will find on what we believe and what we ought to do, a great unity in our presence. A great unity. God didn't make us all identical, but we all can be in harmony with one another. That's something that they had. Could it be that our unwillingness to overlook somebody's fault, our unwillingness, whether it's ourselves or 
our friends and family, in our home, in our church, in our community? Could our bitterness and our unwillingness to cover someone else's faults with love, to cover that multitude of sins with the love of God, could that be the thing that holds back revival in your life? Is that you hold on to that bitterness and you refuse to have unity? Could it be in your marriage or in your home life that the reason that you don't have the kind of spiritual Christian home that you want is because you refuse to have unity? You refuse to overlook those things? Because let's not, let's not pretend, right? Every relationship has something abrasive about it. Some relationships more than others. Why? Because we're not perfect people. We're not perfect people. You know what I found that's even, even better? I found that there are some people that God has intentionally put into my life knowing that I wouldn't get along with them. God's put some people there. And you know what? Not because I'm right and they're wrong and I just have to endure it because they have something I need too. They have something our church needs too. They may have something that your home needs too. Refuse to allow the devil and the flesh to separate us. Let's unify around Jesus and God's word. Refuse to be separated from the brethren. Like when you want to quit running, don't. Don't. Don't let it stop you. That's just the enemy pushing back. Finally, pray for God's work to move forward. Pray for God's work to move forward. This is something that has so gripped me uh, over this last year. Uh, we tried, and it didn't work out, we tried to have a, a prayer retreat, a prayer conference this past year. It didn't work out. Lord willing, next year, if he tarries and allows us all to live, we're going to have a prayer retreat. We're gonna, we are going to pray. You say, I don't think it's going to have very high attendance. I don't care. Even if we just have the faithful band of people that comes on those dreaded third Wednesdays of every month when we just get together and pray, even if that's what we have, I think that God will do more in that meeting than perhaps in all of our preaching meetings combined because of the work that's done. God said, reach the world, but you don't have what you need to do it. So they prayed until they got it, and they received the power. The, the, prayer is not the pregame. Prayer is, is the competition. That's where you win or lose. Prayer is not preparation for the warfare. Prayer is the battle. All of our failures are prayer failures. This is so hard because my natural tendency is to go out there and get it done. A any other guys with me? Or just like, let's go do it. But here's what I've come to believe. One moment empowered by God's spirit will accomplish more fruit for God than years of carnal effort. Let me say that again. One moment of God's empowered efforts, of God breaking through, of his spirit, like on Pentecost, one moment of God breaking through will be so far greater than years of our carnal efforts. How long do you think it would have taken the apostles <laughs> to reach all of those people that were reached on Pentecost? 
And not just them, but because there were so many people there from so many different places, from so many different language groups and cultures that heard the gospel, and when the holiday was over, went back to their places all around the Bible lands and beyond and took the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, how long do you think that would have taken the apostles to do in their own power? They never could have done it. But one moment, one day, when God broke through, 3,000 people were saved and baptized. That's what I want. But I don't think we'll get it. I do not think we will get it any other way than praying. And that goes against almost everything that's in me, because who's got time to pray? There's work to be done. Sorry, God, I'm too busy for you. I've got too much to do for you. Man, God's gotten the whole... This is going to be part of our theme for next year, is about the inner reality of the Christian life, including prayer, spiritual... And, ooh, I'm going to say a dirty word. Should I say it? Fasting. i say a dirty word. Yeah, yeah. Some of you don't like that word. You're not making eye contact with me anymore. Can I tell you, I don't like that word. But it's in the Bible. Jesus said, when you fast. <laughs> Uh-oh. There is a whole deeper level here that most people never get to. It's not hidden. It's just hard. <laughs> it's just hard. I want to be a person of prayer. I hope you do too. I hope you'll come with me on this. Be confident that Jesus is God. Refuse to be separated from the brethren and pray for God's work to move forward. Before we have our time of prayer, I want to run through a couple of questions. How does solid confidence in God transform the Christian life? When you have solid confidence in God, who Jesus is, what he's done for you, how does that transform the Christian life? What would it be like versus having a life where you're wishy-washy about it? Maybe you went through a time like that. How does it transform it? Dave? Makes you a lot more bold. Yeah. What else? What does it do for you? Yeah, Shelly? Yes. Oh, I love that part of it. Makes you a lot less stressed out. When you can say, God's got that, it'll be fine, and actually mean it, oh, that's a great place to be. What else? What, is, what difference does it make when you have confidence in God? Yes. Mm. Yes. People will see it. Unbelievers will ask what's going on. Other believers will become bold because you're bold. Absolutely. Anybody else? What else happens when you have confidence? How does it transform things? Yes. Yeah, you know he's there. You're, you're consciously living in his presence. You know, I talked about wanting to see those things and participate in those things, and, and, and God didn't choose to put me in that place. But I still know that the word of God is true. And I know what it says, and I know what he's done in my life. And so, though we may not have him here bodily like they did, he is here with us. Yeah, that's great. That gives us confidence. How do you overlook someone's failings? 
how do you actually cover a multitude of sins with love? Yeah, Randy? Mm, remember who you are. Do you want to elaborate on that? I think I know where you're going with it. Yep. Sinners saved by grace, no better than anybody else. Amen. How do you cover a multitude of sins with love? Yep. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You're willing to look at the short term versus the long term. Feel better to blow my top now and, you know, get after that person. But what's the long term consequence? How's that going to affect the relationship? Is that moving them closer to the Lord, further away from the Lord? Yeah. What else? How do you overlook? Do you pretend it's not there? By the way, no. <laughs> that doesn't work. You don't pretend that it's not there. You don't pretend that their behavior is okay when it's not. You don't pretend that it didn't happen or that it didn't hurt. All of those things are true. What do you do? You forgive them. Why? They don't deserve it. For Christ's sake, as God hath forgiven you. That's what I remind myself. Do you know how I witness to somebody I don't want to witness to? Like you walk by somebody and you, the Holy Spirit of God says, this is the time to speak with them. And you look at him and you're like, I don't want to. I don't love them, but I do love Jesus. And Jesus loves them. And so if I love Jesus, I'll go after the things and the people that he loves. I'll do it for him until I get spiritual enough to do it for them. Anybody else? How do you overlook? Yeah, Bill? Mm. That's good. Remember that nobody will ever do anything to you, anything as wrong to you as we have to God. Because we've been forgiven of so much, how can we not forgive others of the small amount? I think Jesus told a parable on that. Why do we not pray? Why do we not pray? Yep. Mm. We think our problems are too small. Yeah. We wrongly think that we can accomplish more by our actions. Mm. We, we wrongly think that we can accomplish more by our actions. How many times have I substituted activity for real spirituality? Yeah. Why else don't we pray? Yes, Nancy? Yeah, we put everything else first. We will jokingly sometimes back here when Jim and Steve and I will get together to, to pray before the Sunday morning service. And normally they're waiting for me to get in there. I'm the last one in there. And I'm like, well, we better pray. And someone will usually say, has it come to that? 
by way of our little joking tradition, and that's normally how people, has it really come to that? You know, there's this, there's this device in the hallway across from the nursery. It's called an AED. You know when you use it? <laughs> when, when somebody's dying, when all else fails, you grab that thing. And, and, it, and we do have it checked, and the batteries are good, and, and yes. But that's how, how I have been guilty of using prayer. Well, we tried everything else, and it's so desperate, let's do it. Instead of coming to it first, we come to it last. Yeah. Why else don't we pray? Yes. Mm, when God doesn't answer the way we want, it can keep us from praying or continuing to pray for that thing or for praying for other things. Yeah. One more. Why don't we pray? Yeah, Dave. Yeah. Well, we have so many other options. What would we need to pray for? You're sick? The doctor will fix it. Somebody told me, somebody told me that, oh, there's got to be a perfect pill out there that will, will fix this problem. And I'm like, no, probably not. It'll just give you other problems <laughs> in addition to the one that it fixed. That's good. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I, I feel convicted about how little we pray as opposed to how much we do. That we're more apt to talk to people than to you. We're more apt to, apt to ask for help from one another than from you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be mindful of that. I pray that you'd change us, that when we see the tasks before us, we won't mistake that we can do something in our own strength. I pray that you would help us to refuse to be separated from one another, to refuse to allow the divisions and the problems and the hurts of the past, as real as they are, to keep us from being together. Give us the unity that comes from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Did anybody not receive a prayer sheet on your way in? I want to make sure that everybody has a prayer sheet. We're going to add a few things to it and want to encourage you to take it home. Plus, there's something special on the back of it.